Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Amy Morris, in for Joe Matthew, alongside Bloomberg Congressional Reporter Billy House on this Friday afternoon, this hour on Sound On. We're going to be talking with longtime Iowa political journalist Dave Price. He's going to bring us up to speed on the presidential candidates in Iowa this past week and what we've learned ahead of next week's debate. And Billy House is with me. Billy, it's going to be interesting to see who besides Donald Trump may have picked up a little traction in Iowa. That's right. And hey, maybe we'll learn even who's trying to gain more traction by raising his legal problems, including this week's big indictment in Fulton County, Georgia. Right. We're going to continue to watch that. That's bound to come up on the debate stage next week. We're also going to be talking all of this over with our political panel. Let's go now to Iowa, where we'll find Bloomberg National Politics reporter Stephanie Lai. A big week on the campaign trail. Stephanie, it's only going to get more interesting heading into next week's Republican debate. Tell us what you are going to be watching for first. Certainly. Thank you so much for having me. And to start, you know, we are still tracking whether or not Donald Trump will attend the debate. Um, according to sources that we've been talking to, he's been leaning against it, uh, but might instead uh, do an interview with Tucker Carlson, uh, which, in fact, would be a snub to the RNC and to Fox News, who is hosting the debate. But we are interested in what the other candidates are up to as well. So DeSantis's Super PAC has released a memo uh, earlier this month that was uh, first reported by the New York Times uh, regarding his debate strategy. And what we saw from that is that there's a growing interest hey, in... Steffi, Stephanie, this-, this is Billy. I'm sorry. We just got breaking news that... Uh, Donald Trump does plan to skip that first debate, so just wanted to let you know about that. He He's going to sit in on an interview with Tucker Carlson, the former uh, Fox News host. Right, right, definitely. And that's that's something that we've been tracking for a while, um, and it's something that we will be watching closely. Uh, yeah, I guess there's nothing much more to add on, that, on, on my end for that. The governor of Florida also, Stephanie, seeking to reshape his campaign. Has he been getting any traction there? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been some interest on his team's end to kind of refocus his messaging on uh, more kitchen table issues rather than trying to take on the front runner head on. Uh, and in fact, in some of these documents that were released by Super PAC, it, he seemed they seemed to think that the strategy should be to avoid uh, taking digs at Donald Trump and instead focus on the other candidates, such as Vivek Ramaswamy, who's rising in the polls. Yeah, Stephanie, who is taking uh former President Trump head on. And and uh, Trump is, is, is attracting a lot of crowds there. But what is he what do people there say he's actually done since 2020 to become president again? Sure. Well, to start, you know, we've seen Chris Christie take a pretty strong stance against Trump. Um, earlier, we noticed that uh, he had mentioned that DeSantis should, you know, take active jobs at the front runner. Um, and in terms of what voters are saying on the ground about you know, what they think of Trump, many of them have told me that they valued his economic policy, his focus on national security. And I think that's a messaging that's really resonated with them and something that their campaign is really focused on. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. That's Bloomberg National Politics reporter Stephanie Lai in Iowa, bringing us up to speed on what she saw on the ground during this past week when all the candidates were there at the Iowa State Fair and making their way through the state. Let's turn now to longtime Iowa political journalist Dave Price. Now, Dave writes the Dave Price perspective column on Substack. He's also been following everything that's been going on with all of the presidential hopefuls in Iowa. Dave, great to have you. Did anybody get anybody? in Iowa besides Donald Trump? Oh, perhaps in their own ways. I think the one-on-one conversations that the candidates, not Donald Trump because he chose not to do it, but the one-on-one time that these candidates had, 12 of them with Governor Kim Reynolds, 
surely could be beneficial for them. Vivek Ramaswamy brought out a crowd. Jim Scott brought out a crowd. Ron DeSantis brought out a crowd. Nikki Haley had some people there. So those moments could do them some good. But clearly, the whole experience with Trump coming and the people who gathered around to see them probably attracted a good share of the attention. Hey, are, this is Billy. Is, are, are people uh, satisfied with, for instance, Tim Scott saying he wants to stay positive? He doesn't want to talk about other candidates. He wants to uh, uh, stay above the whatever fray there might be in terms of Trump and, and just speak to the issues. Is that is that satisfying people out there? Hmm, good question. How about a yes and no? Oh. I, I think you can find two different camps on this because I think you have some people who like that positivity from Tim Scott and think that that could be a contrast to DeSantis or Trump as a way for him to stand out. At the same time, they question then why Scott is out there making almost some of the same arguments that Trump is about that there are two-tiered system of justice and such, thinking that this could be an opportunity for Scott to really pivot away from Trump, and he has chosen not to do that. So I think you get two different camps there, and because of that, people have far different opinions about whether this is really a successful path that Scott is trying to lay out. It seems like that would make it harder to determine if there really is anyone who may be turning into a a challenge for Donald Trump. For sure. And I I think that's what has some people kind of scratching their heads about, you know, they get Chris Christie's play, right? Mm -hmm. Although he's not really competing in Iowa and even Will Hurd, who's at the, who's at the fair today. Uh, You can see that where they've decided, look, I'm going to lay out my ideas. I'm going to go hard against Trump. Here's where we go. But for Many of the other ones, they're choosing not to really do that. Now, maybe Mike Pence has dialed it up just a little bit as he started talking about January 6th. But Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, now Vivek Ramaswamy has really been, for the most part, positive about Trump from the get-go. So perhaps it's not as surprising with him. But Scott and Haley in particular, and then now we'll see what Pence does, that could be a way to really start separating themselves. So I'm curious where they're where they are going to go from here to try to maybe point some differences out to get that separation. There should be, if you're looking historically, if it's going to be Trump, and we'll see if DeSantis is going to be remain kind of the big player here, but there should be another place here. This race should be big enough for three primary contenders, if you will, maybe four. But, you know, who would that three and four be? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. You can't say something like, oh, maybe three or four big players for the primary. Okay, who would you think? Well, and, you know, and we have a lot of time here, and it would seem that if we go by history, we'll probably see rise and fall here, perhaps, of a couple. Ramaswamy clearly has some attention, and he gets people going here, and apparently he can rap <laughs> because he did that on stage. Right. But, you know, will he have enough separation? You know, where's the point of distinction between Ramaswamy and Trump? And clearly they're not, they're not clones by any means. But if, if these candidates are not really going to use these moments and all of these indictments to lay out their case why they should replace Trump as the nominee, then how do they really build this? Hey, Dave, Billy here. I'm kind of curious, just on the sidelines, what are state Democrats and other Democrats doing in terms of mischief or whatever else as the Republicans kind of um, tour the map there? I don't know about mischief necessarily, but I think, you know, honestly, they're this is going to sound harsh, but they're trying to figure out how do they become relevant? in all of this. Uh, Joe Biden is not a not a popular guy in this state. Um, He frankly has never fared well in this state other than when he was Barack Obama's vice president. So he's not a popular guy. What is really going to change that at a time that Democrats have really plummeted in this state? I think Democrats are trying to figure out where to pick their spots. You have a couple of the legislative leaders who are doing these 
kind of extended listening tours, if you will, across the state. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst has really focused on that quite a bit as they try to rebuild in little pockets. But I think they know that this is an uphill climb for a million reasons, but especially when you have so many Republican presidential candidates actively campaigning. How do state Democrats push back against that other than just essentially putting out carbon copy statements about such and such as a Trump clone or is too far right, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty hard for them to go out after each one individually. And we are talking with Iowa political journalist Dave Price uh, about all the campaigning that's been going on in Iowa, particularly among Republican presidential hopefuls in the past week or so. Uh, Dave, there's been this rift between Governor Kim Reynolds and Donald Trump. Does that make a difference in Iowa? Is Trump's support so intense that it doesn't really matter? What, what would turn voters off on Trump in Iowa? I am totally curious about this, and, you know, I wish I knew what the answer is, and we're so many months out that it's hard to really know yet. Mm -hmm. But Kim Reynolds has, I think, is the most popular Republican in the state of Iowa. And that's saying something. When Chuck Grassley, the U.S. senator, has been in office in one way or the other since the 1950s. But when you go to events... Kim Reynolds gets the loudest ovation, the most sustained applause, and she used that at the fair, these one-on-one chats that she did with the candidate. So to have Donald Trump really unnecessarily poke at this relationship seems uh, intriguing, um, maybe kind of bizarre, uh, unforced. And so, and also, and this this really didn't get a lot of headlines yet, but Governor Reynolds has talked about that she would remain neutral. However, in the past week, she left open the chance that late in this process, she could endorse somebody. Doesn't mean she will, and she by no means said, hey, it's going to be somebody besides Donald Trump, so I don't want to oversell it here. But just the fact that she said that was interesting to me, that it maybe meant that in the back of her mind, she's thinking about some stuff. Yeah. Hey, uh, I was out there one time when uh, uh, Pat Buchanan refused to kiss babies, but he did kiss piglets. And uh, so, so I'm being facetious there. But which candidates actually seems to have a more human connectedness with with the people one on one that you've seen? Who's actually who's got that ability that, that may have surprised you or or come out of nowhere? Well, I mean, you know, the knock on DeSantis is that is not who he is. And we'll see if this works, but there's no question that DeSantis 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever you want to argue here is they've tried to refocus some things. He did go out and do some of the traditional fair things. He was even out on the bumper cars with his kids and walking around with his, it's very much a lot more focused on his wife and kids now on this as they tried to move out. It doesn't really seem that the conversations with people, sorry, my allergies are kicking in from the fair and all the corn here. Believe me, I I can understand that. (laughs) No no sweat. Um, But, you know, maybe that's just not what comes easiest to him. Um, Ramaswamy seems very easy, uh, an easy conversationalist. Nikki Haley does. Tim Scott does. I walked around a while with Tim Scott and Senator Joni Ernst, and he seems very much at ease talking to people. And you know this, like, it's an art. And the people who have had success in this state can relate to people very quickly. Trump does it in his own way. And his his fair visit wasn't like the other ones. He wasn't really working it. He did his event. He had his entourage. They had a couple of speakers assembled around him and kind of personal anecdotes and why they think that he's uh, would be good to reelect and such and what he's done for the country and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't like the retail politicking that we're used to seeing at the fair. And it is, it's, it's a gift that people have. Terry Branstead, longtime governor here. That was something he can do. Kim Reynolds could do it. Chuck Grassley could do it. Tom Harkin can do it. The longtime Democrat. So we've, it's just a thing you can't fake. You're either good at walking up to people and it looks like you like people You know, like Bill Clinton was so good at that, seeing him walking around here. 
some people are just really good and some people aren't. Perhaps Hillary Clinton wasn't as good as Barack Obama, and maybe that made a difference in people's perceptions of them. So those moments, I think, you really learn a lot from. We only have about 20 seconds here, and I need to ask you this, because you mentioned being at the fair all this past week. Your favorite food, go. Oh, man. Uh, Favorites are tough, but they have this awesome bacon brisket mac and cheese oh stop that's just an amazing combination we're calling it dave (laughs) just just cut it out dave price longtime iowa political journalist author of the dave price perspective column on substack thank you so much for your time you know success when you see it or you think you do the people in the spotlight athletes actors artists but what about the people behind the scenes you know the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And you're listening to Sound On. I'm Amy Morris. In for Joe Matthew alongside Bloomberg congressional reporter Billy House. Want to turn now to our political panel with Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shianzano and Lester Munson, principal at BGR Government Affairs. Thanks both of you for joining us today. There's a two-day forum going on in Atlanta today and tomorrow, the last big showcase event before next week's Republican presidential debate. And Lester, let's start with you. What are you going to be looking for coming out of this forum, considering, if I may, sidebar, President Trump or former President Trump wasn't even invited to this? Yeah, and we still don't know uh, if he's going to be in the debate uh, next week either. And I and I think it's important for folks to remember, this is still wide open. Uh, people aren't actually going to be voting in any kind of nomination process yet on the Republican side for five months. So there's a long way to go here. Yes, the former president is in the lead, and there's and there's a little bit of movement with respect to Ron DeSantis and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and some of these other candidates. But it's still a wide open opportunity for one of these candidates to distinguish themselves, become the front runner or near front runner, and maybe make a real challenge against uh, former President Trump. So I think it's, I think the most important thing going into into these events in the next few days is to to look for people who are going to take advantage of the opportunity. This is entrepreneurial, forward leaning, someone who's willing to take some risks, probably going to pay off for them. Lester, this is Billy. Uh, We just got, we got late breaking news a little while ago that uh, he will not that Trump will not participate in the Trump. He'll do an interview with uh, instead at the time. But let me ask you this. You say, who will seize this opportunity? What, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, attacking Trump? Or does that mean, uh, as Tim Scott has been doing, uh, sticking to the positive? Or is there some kind of middle ground that uh, that might be successful for, for someone? Well, uh, I think... I think there's a huge opportunity for someone who will attack the former president in this sense, call him out on the deceptions about the 2020 election, call, uh, you know, be a truth teller about the election. The reason Donald Trump is not a good candidate uh, for for 24, the argument should be, is that he lost in 2020. This is he's a proven losing candidate. And and the 
there's there's a huge opportunity for a Republican to point that out. It's clear Tim Scott won't do it, at least thus far. Ron DeSantis has uh, campaign his his PAC put memos on the internet inexplicably uh, to that effect. So there, there's an opportunity for one of these other candidates to say it's time we face reality and we need to nominate someone who can win. So I think I think that kind of risk taking will be rewarded. The big opportunity there. Jeannie, let me shift to you for a second. Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez has says he's qualified for his first GOP debate, but now we're getting word from the RNC that they can't confirm that. And Billy and I were talking about this off air, and it seems like not a terribly hard thing to confirm, but maybe there are some other uh, things in motion here that we wouldn't be privy to. Why wouldn't the RNC be able to confirm something like that? You know, it may be a matter of time. We do know he has met the donor threshold. I believe the sticking point is on the polling. And so, you know, the requirements are pretty stringent and they have stuck to them. He is missing or was missing at last check before he said he made it two polls. Um, He had to reach 1% in one national poll and one Iowa poll um, or an additional national poll and one poll that's not Iowa. So it's a little bit confusing and they may just still be going through that. But by, uh, you know, by what we're seeing, Suarez would be sort of the last person who we don't know of yet, who might make it or might not. Everybody else we know of who's met the polling and donor and signed the pledge, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, Haley, Scott, Burgum, of course, Trump, Pence, and Christie all meet the donor polls. They hadn't signed the pledge as of this morning, although Christie said it's just a matter of time, and I'm assuming that's true for Pence, and obviously now that Trump is out, he won't be signing that pledge. Everybody else heard Hutchinson, they are all out for not making either the polling or the donor threshold or signing the pledge. Jeannie, how strange and how how weird is it that there will be also some uh, 18 people along with Trump turning themselves into the Fulton County Sheriff's Office during the week, including probably Wednesday, uh, as these, uh, these other Republicans try to hold a debate? Oh, you know, strange is, you know, I think about it when I teach young people and I think, do they think this is the way that our politics always are? Is this how they think that as they get older, that this is how life is going to be politically? Because this is so bizarre. And, you know, just thinking about this Eric Erickson gathering that's taking place today that you were just talking with Lester about that Trump's Mm -hmm. not attending. It is literally 10 miles from the jail where he is going to be surrendering by next Friday. And we assume he will do it earlier. And so between that and the split screen of him with an interview with Tucker Carlson, Fox News, the RNC, Ronna McDaniel has got to be pulling her hair out at this point that this is where they are. And they, yes, you couple that with 18 other people who will be turning themselves in by next Friday at noon. It, it's stunning. Now, we are hearing from our political panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shianzano and Lester Munson, principal at BGR Government Affairs. Lester, this next question is for you because you said something that really uh, stuck with me. You were talking about a candidate being brave and who's going to be brave and who's going to stand up and who's going to take that pledge or take that stand against Donald Trump. There's a crowded stage that's going to be there on Wednesday. Donald Trump's going to skip it. So would that speak to the hold that Donald Trump still has on the Republican Party? Or does it illustrate how the party is trying to wriggle out of that hold? Because so many people will be there. Well, I think the the hold that Donald Trump has on the party is related, is directly related to his ability to win elections. The reason the Republican Party went more populist in 2016 is because it had failed to win the two previous national elections in in 2008 and 2012. But he's won one one election. That's that's right. And but his the the whole purpose of his effort to discredit the 2020 election is to make sure no one calls him a loser. But he lost. He lost the election. It is the biggest strike against him. For Republicans who are looking to win the White House, they don't want to nominate someone who's going to lose. Right now, unless unless something changes, Donald Trump will lose again if he's the nominee. He already lost to Joe Biden once. Joe Biden was not a terrific candidate, frankly, at least not in my view. So the the best case an alternative to, to Donald Trump should be making is I can win. I will win in 2024. 
That's why you should take my candidacy seriously. I will govern in a way that you find acceptable and that and I will help you achieve your goals. And I will. But the biggest difference between me and Donald Trump is I will win. So you have to go straight at the election lies about 2020. That's why that issue is so important. Someone's got to show some courage and be willing to take it on. Jeannie, yeah, uh, Trump could say I can win, I can win, but he's pri- uh, as he's as his primary calendar plays out next year, he's going to have to say I can win, squeezed in between probably some trials. So that's kind of an awkward situation. And how how do voters, Super Tuesday voters, for instance, perhaps react to the fact that his trial, uh, one of his trials in in Georgia, opened up the day before? Yeah, it's astonishing. It's hard to imagine any person could, you know, go between a political campaign this tough running for president and this many trial dates. It's got to stick in the minds of voters. But the reality, when we look at the Republican primary polls that are out so far, and it is still early, is that they think that Donald Trump can win. That's why his opponents are not going in that direction. The direction that most people are saying they should go in is not that we can win and he can't, but he's going to be too consumed with everything he's got on his plate to move this forward. We like him. We understand why you like him. But we can pick up the flack where he is, you know, unable to because of the time constraints. I don't see how they get around that until and unless those polls change with Republican primary voters, because that 30, 40 percent juggernaut is a pretty sizable majority with that many people in the race at this point. Much more still to come. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, Lester Munson, principal at BGR Government Affairs. I'm Amy Morris. He's Billy House. Want to bring in now Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines. She's going to be taking over the show from here. Kaylee, you're bringing us a power-packed hour to end this Friday, (laughs) starting with your very first guest, Republican Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Yeah, of Wisconsin. And Wisconsin's a very interesting state right now Mm -hmm. for many reasons. A, President Biden was there earlier this week in Milwaukee talking about His legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, celebrated its first birthday this week, I would imagine the congressman, based on his activity on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, doesn't necessarily agree with everything the president was trying to tout there. But then more importantly, perhaps next week, that's also where the debate in Milwaukee will be happening. We now know, apparently, former President Trump will not be in attendance. I wonder what the congressman's thoughts on that are. And then, of course, once we get past the debate, we're really going to be talking about the showdown on Capitol Hill we're probably set for in September and trying to avoid a government shutdown. We'll get his thoughts on how that should be done. Oh, my goodness. I almost forgot there might be a government shutdown. Yeah. They're the probably more is- likely than not, unless they can agree to a continuing resolution, which not every Republican in Congress may want to agree to. Everything that's been going on politically, I almost let something like that slip out of my radar. So that the, the deadline for that's the end of September, correct? September 30th, yes, theoretically, unless they can get together on a continuing resolution, will, which will extend things to some point. What that point is, I don't think any of us really know. But if they can't do that, there is a risk that come October 1st, you do have the government shut down. But didn't Senator Schumer say that they were working on that stopgap measure together? Like they they seem to be on at least the same page. He and McCarthy, sure. Is McCarthy on the same page oh, as the rest of his caucus? Right. This is the question we continually come back to. We've seen this song and dance on a few different fights before, and the, the, the showdown over the shutdown probably won't be that much different. And really quickly, you're also going to talk, talk about the climate agenda, Biden's climate agenda. We sure will. And Biden's summit happening today at Camp David with the leaders of Japan and South Korea. That's huge. That's historic. I cannot wait to hear this. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines. She's going to take it the rest of the way from here. I'm Amy Morris. Billy House is also going to stick around. The second hour of Sound On starts right now. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's great to be here with Billy House today. Billy in the house. What's your Twitter handle? That's what it is, right? At House in Session. House in Session, even better. Yeah. I really should have looked this up before I came into the studio. No, nobody does. But Billy, it's so great to have you here because as we were just talking about with Amy, we've been kind of in the August doldrums, although arguably August has been way busier than I think anyone would have anticipated Absolutely. with Congress and recess. But we need to be looking toward the future because just in a couple weeks, they're going to be coming back and it's going to be a sprint to that September 30th deadline to try to get these 12 appropriation bills through. What are you hearing at this point 
about the likelihood of that actually going to be mission accomplished. It's one of the uh, the great uh, recent historical uh, aspects of Congress is that they take a long August break right before uh, spending bills are needed to be done uh, to avoid a government shutdown. So what we're hearing is that uh, uh, they aren't going to do, uh, the, the Senate and the House will not be able to do all 12 annual spending bills before the uh, uh, October 1 start of the new fiscal year. So both leaders, uh, the Republican leader of the House, Speaker uh, McCarthy, and uh, the Senate Democratic uh, leader and majority leader in the Senate, uh, Schumer, have, have this week said that a stopgap bill will be needed. But that's anything but easy, and there's going to be a rocky road ahead, and uh, there are those who object, and uh, so it's going to be, uh, again, another race to the to the deadline there. And it's going to be a busy September for all of us, I'm sure. It is one thing to say, oh, we'll just do a continuing resolution. Yeah. It's another to actually get a CR done. Absolutely. There are people who have all kinds of demands before they'll go along with that. All right. Well, let's see if our next guest has any demands to go along with this. Congressman Brian Stile is joining us. He is a Republican from Wisconsin, also chair of the House Administration Committee. Congressman, it's been a while. Thank you so much for coming back to Sound On here on Bloomberg. What are your thoughts on a continuing resolution? Can enough of your colleagues get behind it? Well, thanks for having me on. I think what's so important is we do not allow our federal government to shut down. Ultimately, the way Congress operates leaves a lot to be desired. No private sector business would operate like this. That said, this is the situation we're in. We're not probably going to get all of the appropriations bills done in time. What we should do is extend the clock, allow us to finish the work rather than allowing us to shut this down. I think at the end of the day, we're going to find a way to keep the government open and operational. I think that's prudent. Uh, But then we do have to get to the work of actually moving these appropriations bills forward. Uh, Congressman, uh, uh, the push uh, for a a CR also comes with a question about how long it should last. And and the Speaker uh, McCarthy has said he does not want one that would extend to the end of the year or another and be jammed by Congress. what other uh, what length do you think they're looking at, and and can the work get done by whatever length that is? Well, hopefully we can only do we can we can limit this to short term extensions and really put the pressure on the appropriations committee to finish the work, bring the bills to the floor, and get those passed. We've noticed that the Senate hasn't gotten almost anything done this year, which is a continuous problem and the lack of action on the Senate side. But I'm optimistic that we'll actually be able to get this done, uh, but time is going to tell. Congressman, you've joined this program many times before in which we've talked about some of the discord uh, within the Republican Party, specifically within the House. You've described it as, you know, a Thanksgiving family dinner that has hundreds of people really hard to, you know, navigate through that situation sometimes or a long road trip. How much of that do you think is going to go on around this fight? How many members do you think could make some serious noise about this? Well, I think you're going to see a lot of jockeying for position here because the spending that's been coming out of Washington for years now has been wildly unchecked. Then further coming out of the pandemic, what we saw is a dramatic increase in the amount of spending, in particular on discretionary programs, out a dramatic increase. How do we bring that back into check? There's a lot of people that have a lot of frustration about how Congress operated previously. But again, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove and the votes come to the floor, I do think we'll have the opportunity to prevent a government shutdown and ultimately get these appropriations bills complete. How does a how does a separate supplemental bill that includes perhaps um, money for Maui and other spending uh, disaster aid money and Ukraine money, more money for uh, the the war in Ukraine? uh, How does that get through? Uh, Does that just complicate everything or is that part of this overall complicated quilt of things Congress needs to do? Well, the president effectively brought a 13th appropriations bill uh, idea up. This is going to be all part of the broader negotiation of whether or not we're able to limit the growth of federal government spending, in particular on our discretionary programs. So this is part of the broader conversation we're going to have as we all return on the other side of Labor Day. A ton of work in front of us, uh, but hopefully we can keep cooler heads prevailed and actually get these appropriations bills done. Congressman, can I just ask you, it seems that no one really is interested in sticking to what was agreed in the debt ceiling debate. So I just wonder what the whole point of the song and dance was from earlier this year, if we're just going to have the fight all over again in the next month or so. Well, I don't know that I fully agree with you there. I do think there's a lot of us that would like to see discretionary spending kept. 
within the caps agreed to in the debt ceiling negotiation. I think those are good caps for us to be targeting towards, and I think it's actually quite doable to do that. That said, there's going to be a negotiation with the Senate. The Senate would love to spend money. The administration would love to spend money. And so we're going to have to hold our ground, and it's going to be a, a grueling negotiation because it's a battle between limiting the growth of our federal government spending and a continuation of really aggressive new government spending that the Biden administration has been advocating for. Are you tired of the constant drama every week? Uh, every Monday, there's a new drama facing you guys, and uh, by the end of the week, you, well, really squeak by. Uh, is that is that going to just continue for the next year? Well, there, there's plenty that I don't like about Washington, D.C. and how it operates, but I would say that some of that is largely driven by a media narrative, underestimating Republicans in the House only to find by the end of the week that we've accomplished it and got it done. And so I think what we're going to have to do, we're often underestimated, we over-deliver. Uh, we're going to have to keep that attitude going forward to the remainder of this Congress. Uh, as we talk about the picture going forward and, and to return to what was agreed to in the debt ceiling deal, I wonder if January 1st is the real deadline, because that's when that 1% across the board spending cut would kick in. Is, is that really the date we should be looking at? That's one of the dates, but let's not lose sight of the fact that in particular as it relates to our national defense, conducting a continuing resolution rather than passing an appropriations bill is a really terrible policy. We're far better off to pass a new appropriations bill in particular with how dynamic the global environment from a security situation is. That said, I'd rather do a continuing resolution than shut the government down, but it is not the right answer. The right answer is to get the hard work done of identifying where we need to be spending in the United States, spending there, and then limiting spending in other areas. Well, on that, is there is there a problem? Is there going to be a problem passing a supplemental with Ukraine military funding? Well, hopefully uh, that's part of the broader negotiation. Really, it's the top-line dollar that is both that is essential as well as what we're spending on. And so the president put forward the uh, the um, the, the supplemental, as you noted, really creating that 13th uh, appropriations bill, as I said. But this is all going to be part of a broader negotiation of how we're going to get these spending bills done this year. So on the subject of the president, you, if you've referred to the Biden administration's policies a few times in this conversation. He was in Wisconsin just a few days ago. He was in Milwaukee talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, noting, which the data does support, that inflation pressures have started to ease in this economy. How much credit do you think the administration's policies should get for that? Well, they've eased, but they're still dramatically higher than the Fed's target of 2%. We have a long ways to go to bring inflation back down. And if we look at what's occurred over the course of the Biden administration, the average American family is spending over $700 a month more than they were before President Biden took office for the same things. So American families are still getting squeezed. Their pocketbooks, pocketbooks recognize that Biden economics has been disastrous to American families. And I think at the end of the day, the American voters are going to recognize that and vote them out of office in 2024. Well, it sounds like you didn't join in the one-year anniversary celebrations of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, but you're right. Some surveys do show an angst and anxiousness among uh, ordinary people over the economy. And that's already seems to be taking hold in some of the 2024 congressional election campaigning. No, absolutely. You can just pretty much talk to anybody. I mean, you can talk to any American family. Wages haven't kept up with inflation. Sure, inflation has slowed a touch, but it's still American families are finding themselves further behind the eight ball than they were when President Biden took office. And so the question here is, how do we turn that around? You pretty much need to do the opposite of what the Biden administration has done. He's conducted a war on energy. Instead, he should be unleashing American energy. He paid people not to work after the pandemic was over. You got to work to get people back to work, but not only that, but to higher paying jobs, onshoring American work. What did the IRA do? It really sent a ton of money to foreign companies and created taxes on American manufacturers. Literally the opposite of what you'd want to do if you're trying to spur growth and help American workers. Well, if we're talking about Americans' pocket books and things that have been spurring growth, consumer spending is, is a big one of them. It's consistently held up, but people also haven't been having to pay monthly student loan debt repayments for a while now. That's going to change in October. Should we be worried about the consequence for the U.S. economy? And I ask this given your role on the Financial Services Committee. You know, we should be worried about the consequences of the fact that the Biden administration was trying to convince people that they didn't have to pay their debts for over a year and the $5 billion of that cost the American public every single month. 
the fact that the Biden administration has planned to effectively subsidize everything but not actually address the root causes should be concerning. You'll just look at that student debt program. It did nothing to address the underlying issue, which is the high cost of education. It had everything to do with subsidizing the higher education system, which is what's caused the problem in the first place. So anything happening in Wisconsin next week? Well, I look forward to I look forward to the, the to the conversation that we're going to have. Um, I think it's all about whether or not we can present a future for the American public different and in contrast to the Biden administration's. And the contrast is ready for the taking. The hope here is that we don't delve into a personality contest, but rather we have a conversation about the policies needed to move the country forward. But Congressman, if you want to be president of the United States, should you be showing up? to the debate, regardless of whether or not you were president before or the front runner? I'll let the, the President Trump speak for himself. I'm not going to offer him uh, advice on that in that regard. But ultimately, I think the more we're having a conversation about the disastrous policies of, from the Biden administration, and the more we're presenting an alternative option to the American people about economic growth, about limiting inflation, about securing the U.S.-Mexico border, we have a great opportunity to be successful in 2024. Yeah, if all eight, if all eight uh, people showing up on the debate stage uh, refuse to uh, suggest anything about the former president, won't there be a big uh, missing element to that debate? Should somebody attack uh, or at least address the legal problems that the former president has? I don't think people lack for information about President Trump. I think what people lack is a real clear path about where we need to take the country and contrast that with where President Biden has taken the country over the course of the past two and a half years. The media focused attention on former President Trump and everything unrelated to actual policies that need to be implemented to get the country back on track, I think is a disservice to the American people. And hopefully on the debate stage, we're actually talking about the future of our country. All right. Final question for you, Congressman. Why is Milwaukee such a good place for the first first debate? Is it the beer? Is it the cheese? It is all of the above. I'm in Wisconsin right now. Let me tell you, there is no place you'd rather be than Wisconsin in August. This is the perfect weather. It is the perfect beer. It's the best cheese. We're going to have a great time uh, in Milwaukee next week. Well, I've been choking on humidity here in Washington for the last month, so I'm sure you're really eager to get back to that, Congressman. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time this afternoon. Congressman Brian Style, the Republican from Wisconsin and chair of the House Administration Committee as well. It's going to be an interesting one. In Milwaukee next week, Billy, that that is for sure, regardless of whether or not the former president is there, he is going to haunt that stage. Absolutely. They lost Aaron Rodgers, but they have the debate. (laughs) Do you know anything about Packers football Uh, other than Aaron Rodgers? I I own stock. I bought a piece of stock. Oh, well, there you go. Very cool. I'm a Broncos fan myself. I'm a Bills fan, but whatever. You know, we talk about getting to the end of the August recess, the start of the shutdown bat- battle and all of that. What's more important about September is it brings back NFL football, like for real, not preseason stuff. Which, yeah, I was going to say, once you get past <laughs> these preseason games, oh my. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg 
business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back to Bloomberg Sound On. It is Kaylee Lyons in the seat today, but joining me is Billy House, one of our congressional reporters here at Bloomberg, while Joe Matthew takes a well-deserved long weekend. And what a week it has been, Billy. We've talked a lot about all of the different stuff going on in domestic politics, least of all another indictment for former President Trump, the questions around whether or not he's going to show up at the debate in Milwaukee next week. It, apparently the answer is no. Right. Apparently counter-programming is instead the answer. But something else we've talked a lot about this week is the issue of China in particular. This is something that's a subject of conversation at Camp David, I'm sure, right now between President Biden and the leaders of South Korea uh, and Japan. But we've been talking a lot about concerns around China's economy, too. We have. And uh, as for talking about it, we also have a whole new committee in Congress Mm -hmm. devoted just to China. So that's a a focus, uh, whether, you know, the Republicans in Congress and the White House uh, have the right are on the same page in their directions is a whole other thing, but certainly it is uh, tunnel vision on China in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's a difficult needle to thread when you are trying to compete with China, but China looks like it has some fragilities going on right now. So how do you go without going too far? I mean, I just pulled up This is one of my favorite functions on the Bloomberg Terminal, everyone. So listen closely. Read Go shows you some of the top red stories over any given time period. And this week, among the top 10 red stories on the Bloomberg Terminal, China Shadow Bank misses dozens of payments, sparking protests. China finance giants miss payments, alarm regulators and markets. China cuts rate by most since 2020 as economic woes deepen. Let's bring in now David Weston. He is the host of Wall Street Week, which airs tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV. David, in the conversations you've had this week, how concerned are big investors about China? Well, you have to be, don't you? I mean, it's the second largest economy in the world. We, of course. Whether we like it or not, we're very much intertwined with them. Uh, and it's certainly, uh, former President Trump managed to get an indictment, but President Xi did not have a great week either, I don't think. We've given uh, just a raft of bad economic news kept coming in. And, you know, we have been so concerned, as Billy just said, with the strength of China, that maybe it's gotten too strong economically, particularly in things like semiconductors. But it come, the question comes up, do we want a strong China or a weak China? And so we talked Larry Summers, and we ask him just exactly that question. Do we want a strong China or a weak China? It's, it's two-edged. Uh, it's good when your customer prospers, and it's bad when your competitor gets hyper-efficient. So it's a two-edged uh, thing. I am concerned that we will become the object of China's frustration, and that will tempt them to uh, lash out. So that's Larry Summers talking about some of the concerns he has about a, a weak China. And I must say, Kaylee and Billy, one of the things I'm hearing, I heard out in Aspen, I was out there, I heard with, with Larry actually as well, an analogy, and it's a strained analogy as all analogies are, but an analogy to Japan leading a war to where if you recall, we embargoed the, them on oil. And uh, many people think that was one of the triggering factors of Pearl Harbor. The question is, if we really cut them off too severely, might they, as Larry just said, lash out? If not at us, then maybe at somebody like Taiwan. Well, you were out there. Did you hear much comment about uh, the proposed new Biden administration outbound investment restrictions with China? It's funny. I think what I would say, Billy, is that everyone agreed we have to do something uh, to maintain a lead in things like the, the super small semiconductors that allow us to do AI, that we have, they said, maybe a five-year lead. We have to do what we can to maintain them. But the concern was that it's very hard to be really narrowly targeted on that and not how to spread into a larger form of protectionism. And particularly as it gets political, then everybody's got uh, an iron in the fire. And we say, okay, for the name of national defense, we're also going to embargo those other things. That was the biggest concern that it will go too far. Well, speaking of of going too far, we've had that concern with a lot of central banks as well, like the Fed, whether they were going to go too far in their rate hiking campaign, ultimately crash land the U.S. economy. Then it felt like we were having more of a soft landing conversation. But the bond market's been kind of wacky this week as well, David, for all the conversation about China, which I'm sure has played a role in it. Mm -hmm. What conversations have you had? around what we're seeing in bonds. I know Larry Summers w- w- wrote, weighed in on that too. Yeah, forgive me if I come back to Larry, because one of the questions I asked of Larry, as I asked of Rick Reeder last week is, where does the 10-year yield want to be? 
I mean, where, where is it headed? <laughs> and Larry had a very specific answer, and you can agree with it or disagree with it, but what I liked about it is it broke it down. He, he basically, this is arithmetic. The, the yield in the 10-year is composed of three things. Number one is underlying inflation. He said, okay, let's be generous and say we get it down to 2.5%. So there you get 2.5. Then there's a real yield that historically has been at least 1.5. Actually, it's been higher in general, but 1.5. So add another 1.5 on, and there's a term premium that's normally around 75 basis points. You add all that up, you come up with 4.75. So Larry might well say to you, Kelly, I'm not sure the bond market's been all that wacky. Hmm. How impactful were the federal minutes on all this, do you think? Uh, or is that just one element of, of all the things that played a part? Well, it's an interesting question, Billy, because what I, you would have studied them close, more closely than I have. But what I took away from it is there's concern, continued concern about inflation. They may not have gone far enough yet. But I think that the, I thought that the discussion this week shifted a little bit from are they going to raise again? They may, they may not. To how long are they going to have to stay up above five? Uh, and it's sort of a growing sense that they're going to have to stay up there for a while, as opposed to the markets for, the, for so long were pricing in cuts as early as you know the first quarter of next year. And that really makes a big difference uh, as a practical matter in things like equity valuations because of the discount rate. Well, sure, equity valuations, but also things like, I don't know, how much it costs to buy a home, what your mortgage rate is. I think it's now at the highest since 2001, which means a first-time home buyer like myself may never become a first-time home buyer unless something changes. Yeah. But uh, I will digress on my personal yeah, well, uh, well, So I have to jump in there. I have to reassure you, the first house I bought was in 1981, and my mortgage, I think, was 17. Oh, so, so, okay. It's all relative. We managed to handle it. So you can do that, I think. <laughs> but by the way, there's another uh, debtor that we have to think about here. It's not just how much we pay for mortgages. How much is the federal government going to have to pay mm-hmm. on its debt? Because I saw a thing actually out of Maya McGinnis' shop, you know, the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget today, yeah. that really indicated how much more we're going to owe if it stays up well above uh, 4% on the 10-year. And David, just quickly, we only have about a minute left, but who else should we be looking forward to on Wall Street Week tonight? Well, we got Steve Ratner on with Larry because we want to talk to Larry about where the tenure is, but we want to talk to a real investor who invests billions of dollars about what difference it makes, whether it's 4.5 or 3.5. And then we took a look at, at activist investing with a fellow named Greg Taxon, uh, who is, has spent his career in that. And I don't know if you've noticed, I had not really noticed, it's dropped off substantially. Hmm. And we wanted to talk to him, what caused that and is it coming back? What's, what is the dynamics of activist investing. Awesome. Well, really looking forward to watching that. You can catch that 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV, so don't miss it. Miss it. David Weston, host of Wall Street Week, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for giving me a little bit more confidence on my ability to buy a home sometime. You can do it. You can do in it. In the yeah. future. Thank you, David. This is the kind of energy I need on a Friday. David Weston joining us. Billy House also in the house. I'm Kaylee Lines. You are listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.